Well, hello. It's great to be able to record some additional sermon content for you this week. About two or three weeks ago, I was part of the National Prayer Breakfast, which is an event that happens every year, and it brings together church leaders with MPs and other civic leaders. It's usually held in Westminster Hall in the Houses of Parliament, but obviously this year with um, social distancing and lockdown, that wasn't possible. So the event moved online, and as a result, we actually gathered somewhere between three and 4,000 leaders uh, to pray together and to hear keynote speakers. And one of the keynote speakers this year was the Bishop of Kensington, uh, Graham Tomlin, um, who many, many years ago was my theological college tutor. And he gave an amazing talk that I've already shared on the prayer net, which was taken from Philippians chapter two and talking about how the call on us as the church is to serve after the example of Christ. And I thought today it would be good to expand on that because we, we're living in a fast changing world. If you think back to the turn of the year, how the world was and how your life was and what your rhythms were like, well, now we're in a very different scenario and we're not sure what the world will be like for a time. Um, we don't know what the world will be like for society. We don't know what the impact will be on the economy. We don't even know when we'll be able to get back to the sorts of rhythms of gathering in small groups and as congregations that we're used to. But some things are sure. One of those, obviously, is God's love for us, and another is our need of him. And I think that running through this whole season of interruptions, there's a call from God to use this time to reset and to refocus to maybe repent over things that we've forgotten or lost sight of, to get back to basics and re-establish rhythms, habits that help us live well. So I think it's great to be looking at Philippians. Philippians is uh, an epistle that we often recommend to people to read after they've maybe read a gospel and when they've first become Christians. And that's because it's an amazing introductory letter. It's written to a young church uh, Paul writes about the, the attitudes and the lifestyles and the relationships that are new once you become a Christian. It's a great statement of the life that Jesus made possible and how to live it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now there was in the 40s and 50s a great Archbishop of uh, Canterbury who led our Church of England called William Temple and he was an, an amazing writer of spiritual literature. And one of his quotes has always stuck with me, and I've shared it in our books. Uh, William Temple wrote this. It's no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it, but I can't. And it's no good showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus comes to live in me, then I can live a life like his. And of course, that's exactly what the gospel says, that we can live a life like Jesus because he has literally sent his spirit to live in us, to transform us. And we know that we're destined to be conformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus. And so as we try and work it out in this life, which is a process we call sanctification, which is what God does as we follow Jesus in our discipleship, we remember that Jesus is our model. 
Now I'm going to read from um, Philippians chapter 2 and picking up at verse 12. In verse 12 it says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Now, I was always taught that when you're reading the Bible and there's a for or a therefore, you need to work out what it's for or what it's there for. In other words, it's a conclusion that's been drawn from something that's come before. So we need to look back into the passage. And actually, as we look back, we'll see another therefore in verse 9 and another therefore in chapter 2, verse 1. In actual fact, we have to go all the way back to chapter 1 and verse 27 to understand the point that Paul is making. In chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this, Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this passage is all about how we are to live in a way that glorifies God and shows that we are disciples of Jesus. This is all about living the life that Jesus makes possible by the Holy Spirit. And in the beginning of chapter 2, the passage that um, Bishop Graham spoke on at the National Prayer Breakfast, he talks about our motivation, which is the experience of love that we have. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. And he carries on to talk about what, how that image of Jesus, how the example of Jesus helps us as we live out the Christian life together. Um, but we're meant to have a mindset like Jesus. Uh, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And then we have this very famous passage that's often known as the Song of Christ's Glory. And it begins, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being found in human likeness, and became obedient, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And it's all about preferring others, laying down our lives, and being one. Now, the reading that I just read from um, verses 12 and 13 is the start of Paul unpacking some of that thought where he gets practical. And I thought if you are somebody like me that was really blessed by Bishop Graham's talk, it would be good going on further and looking at what comes after as we seek to live like Jesus in our ordinary everyday lives. And there are three things. The first comes from the verses I've read already. That actually if we're going to be like Jesus, then we have to begin by obeying the Father. The pattern Jesus set for us was that he was obedient. We, we read in verse 8 that he was obedient even to death on a cross. But if we want to know the source of the power in Jesus' life, it was always rooted in his obedience to the Father. In John 14 verse 31, Jesus says, I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. If we go all the way back to Jesus' baptism, which was the start of his public ministry, in that moment, Jesus hears the affirmation of the Father and receives the Holy Spirit, is filled with power, before he goes off into the desert to be tested 
and then comes into public ministry. But before all that, we should note that he first obeys. He comes forward and he comes to John the Baptist and John quite rightly says, there's something wrong here. You're the greater, I'm the lesser. I should be being baptized by you. My baptism is a baptism of the repentance for the forgiveness of sins and Jesus, I could tell that you are the Holy Lamb of God and you don't need that. But Jesus says, let it be so for now to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, what he's saying is, I want to fully embrace the path that the Father has given me. I want to be obedient to my Father. And it's out of that obedience to the Father that Jesus knows who he is, gets that affirmation from, from the Lord, and receives the power of the Holy Spirit. And here in chapter 2 of Philippians, Paul talks about working out our salvation in fear and trembling. It doesn't mean a craven fear of God, as if God's somebody who's unpredictable or harsh, but a conscious fear of our own tendency to disobey God and our desire not to offend him because his ways are good. So if we're going to live out the life of Christ in our own ordinary everyday lives, it's got to start with obeying. But then it's got to move on into rejoicing because our obedience isn't meant to be sulky or sullen. From verses 14 to 18, Paul picks up that theme. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you'll shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labour in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I will be glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's not meant to be a difficult thing for us to follow God. It's, it's a joyful thing. It's an offering back to God in thanks for all that he's given us. And finding joy in doing what God wants is how we stand out in what Paul calls a warped and crooked generation. Basically, people who know God have an amazing motivation to live lives of love and self-sacrifice. And that becomes incredibly attractive to others. Paul's talking about pouring his own life out as he writes this epistle, he's in prison and he thinks he's probably coming towards the end of his life. But he finds joy in following Jesus. He finds joy in serving God. And he commends that as a path to the Philippians, which will lead them into the fullness of life. I think often we think of obedience as being something difficult or heavy. And a great revelation I had a few years back was that obedience is instead an invitation to intimacy with God. Lots of you might remember that um, Becky and I used to have a golden retriever called Fergus. Um, we got him because there was a time when everybody said that if you have an autistic child, getting a dog is really helpful for them and brings them out of themselves. So we got Fergus. Unfortunately, I think he was probably an autistic dog because he was almost impossible to train. If you've ever seen the uh, comedy film Marley and Me, that was us. It's about living with the world's most disobedient dog. Well, Fergus was uh, a great lover of people and other animals. And so when we took him out, he was always pulling on the lead and running away. And we would constantly try and um, hold him back. Some people said, well, maybe you should try a choke chain. 
and all we had was a dog who was strangling himself because he was still desperate to go and meet everybody. And so in the end, we actually had to go to remedial dog training. And uh, we went over to a place in Collier Row and uh, they said, well, walk him around the paddock and we'll observe how the dog behaves. And I think we only managed to get halfway around before they said, stop, 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 this isn't right. It's not good for the dog. Leave him with us, go have a coffee, come back. And when we came back later, a couple of hours, there was our dog, there was Fergus, walking along with his head next to the hip of the, um, the trainer. And rather than being tense as a wire, as it always would be when we were taking him out, this time the lead was in a nice loose parabola from, our hat, from the trainer's hand to the dog's neck. And I remember saying to them, what have you done? You know, have you delivered our dog from a demon? Or, you know, is this the same dog? And they said, no, it's really simple. The way that we train the dog is that as we're walking along, next to our hip, we have a little pouch and we put pieces of liver in that pouch. And as we're walking, we slip a little bit of liver to the dog every now and then. And the dog soon learns that the most rewarding place to be is next to us. And so he desires that more than he desires to meet that other dog or that other person and stays close. And after a while, they get so used to it that you don't even need the liver anymore. The dog gets trained. So we did try that and there certainly was some improvement. Um, however, what really happened in that was that God spoke to me because I'd always thought of, of obedience as being, I really want to do this, but I'm gonna hold myself back because I know I shouldn't. Whereas actually, obedience really is desiring intimacy with God. I desire that more than anything else. I don't want to be disobedient because I know that will take me away from God's presence. I desire him more than I desire that thing. Sin is pleasurable for a very short season. So as Jesus is said to have um, experienced in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says of Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorning its shame. Jesus did the same. Jesus obeyed and he rejoiced in the obedience because he knew it kept him close to God. And actually the joy that was set before Jesus was not just being obedient to the Father, but it was you and me being saved. It's being used by the Father to do something wonderful in other people's lives. Paul said, I'm pouring my life out like a sacrifice, but it's worth it. Join me. And he would say the same to us today. It's worth it to follow Jesus. There's no sacrifice in obedience. It's actually choosing the better thing over the thing that just appears to be attractive. And a final thought is towards the end of the passage. So from verse 19, Paul talks about how he wants to send Timothy and how he wants, how he has already sent back Epaphroditus. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like Timothy who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as, uh, as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow servant, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. 
for he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. And I love the way how uh, this little epistle, each section of the letter, leads on to the next. So Paul's been talking about the image and example of Jesus. He's been talking about joyful self-sacrifice. And then his mind goes immediately to two of his team, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Timothy, who loves the whole church because he looks after Jesus's interests above his own. And Epaphroditus, who served faithfully and sacrificially to support Paul, putting his own life on the line for the sake of the gospel. He did what he could and he didn't count the cost. And I, I just wonder, would I, would you, be the sort of person that someone's mind would go to immediately when they thought of joy or faithfulness or loving compassion? When somebody says, who's Christ-like in your life? Would they be able to look at us and say, well, that person, they show me something of Jesus. Let's make that our aim. As someone said, I want to be someone who someone would want to be. What a great phrase. I want to be someone who someone would want to be. And by the Spirit of God living in us day by day, that's what God wants as well. He wants to work out in us the image and likeness of his son Jesus. So obeying, rejoicing and loving. Making sure that we are manifesting the image of Jesus in our lives. Displaying Christ-like character following after the way of the cross and finding it to be the way of life. Let's pray. Let us welcome the presence of God. He's always here, but let's acknowledge his presence with us and be still to hear what he might want to say and to be receptive for all that he might want to give. Spirit of God, give us the confidence that you are in our lives, transforming us from the inside out. Give us the faith to believe that we are destined to be conformed to the image and likeness of the Father's Son. Help us to see that because of your work in us, we are making progress each and every day, step by step. Help us to cooperate with you, that the fruit of your work in us would flow out from our lives, so that we are experienced by others as carrying something of the fragrance of Christ to them. We ask, Lord, that you give us a fresh vision of an obeying that is leading to rejoicing 
and is manifested in loving. I ask that joyful obedience would characterise our lives. Because we can't do this on our own, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come in greater measure. We welcome you. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Renew our self-image and give us the Father's perspective. Strengthen us to do the things that are right and place within us a deep distaste for the things that are wrong. Draw us into a holy intimacy and walk with us as we follow Jesus to love and serve others. Amen.